1: I am super excited to do this podcast. Today's going to be a little different for you listeners out there. I asked my wife the other day, I said, you know, I need to find a new guest for the show. And she said, well, I have an idea. Why don't you be the guest and I will interview you. So that's what this podcast is all about. It's about me, your host, Billy Gallo. And I want to welcome my beautiful wife, the founder of Manhattan Model Studios, my soulmate, my life partner, the air that I breathe, the food that I eat, the wind beneath my wings, my everything, my beautiful wife, Diana Gallo. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Again.
2: Thank you. Yeah, this is my (sighs) second time. Yes, it is. So exciting. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to interview because you know what? Your guests, they get to talk about themselves. You interview them, but nobody has interviewed you on this show. That is true. And you have a lot of experience, a lot of expertise. So it's my turn to interview you. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay. First I got to say,
1: I'm a little nervous. I don't Take know what's coming.
2: <laughs> good. Ah, Okay. okay. Well, bad.
1: okay. All right.
2: First question for you. This is an easy one. Don't be nervous. Okay. When did you first know that you wanted to be an actor?
1: First know. Ooh, that's a tough one. I think I think what probably I was probably like eight or nine, maybe around the eight, eight or nine. I used to go to the local butcher with my mother and I would lay on the floor like a slice of bacon in a frying pan and I would fry up and I'd spit would come out and I'd shrink and the butcher would laugh and he would cut me a slice of bologna and I got a reward for my performance. And, and, you know, I, both of my sisters were with me and they didn't get a slice of bologna. I was the only one with a, a slice of bologna. So I think that's where, you know, I was called hyperactive as a kid. I was told, you know, it's kind of bouncing off the walls. And I had teachers that, were pretty awesome. They'd take me out of my classroom and they would let me perform for the other kids. And I'd do my bacon act or I used to love, I love Lucy. And I knew Ricky Ricardo's, you know, come in and answer, hey, Lucy, I'm home. And I do this whole Babalu act. And, you know, I do pantomime and, you know, the teachers would take me from classroom to classroom to classroom and I would perform. And
2: so you would get a lot of positive attention
1: for it? Well, I think that's the way I got love. You know, for me as as a young boy, I had a, a rough childhood and I think I was trying to get attention and that was my way to get attention. And, and, and then I felt rewarded. I felt loved. I mean, th- those are the f- real time, few times where I really felt like appreciated I felt comfortable doing that. You know, I was always uncomfortable being me. I it was more it was more comfortable be, being somebody else.
2: Right. Well, that's the perfect lead-in for my next question. So, my next question for you is: Okay, you and I have super different childhoods. I grew up. I'm born and raised in L. A. Grew up in a small town called Igarag riding my bike, skateboarding, skating around the neighborhood. My parents would say, just come home before dark. You know, we knew all the neighbors, all the kids. We would just play. You had the same thing, but it was in the streets of New York and Brooklyn in the 70s. (laughs) So your childhood was very different. Tell us about your childhood and tell us how you feel that That childhood has influenced you as an actor, and as a writer, and as a producer.
1: Well, growing up in Brooklyn was, I wouldn't change anything. I mean, I love growing up in Brooklyn. I am Brooklyn. It's part of who I am. And it, it formed me. And yeah, you know, Brooklyn, where I grew up, you know, as a kid, we were poor. My mother, I come from a broken home. My father wasn't around. My mother did her best to raise me and my two sisters. You know, if there was one egg, we'd split it. If there was no hot water, you know, to take a bath, she would heat water and, you know, give us a bath. If there was no heat in the house, she would open the oven door. So, you know, we we grew up, you know, poor. And it, it, the, the block that I grew up on was amazing. I mean, I grew up in, in an amazing neighborhood. Everybody knew everybody. It was It was an amazing place to grow up. And then, you know, the 70s hit and drugs and heroin and gangs and graffiti covered walls. And it became a dangerous place. I mean, the building that we used to live in, you know, I used to have to climb over heroin addicts to get to school. You know, so
2: it wasn't dangerous when you were super small it, it started to evolve. yeah it got
1: yeah when you know in the early seventies it was it was still you know it was a really great neighborhood everybody the kids played in the street I mean we played every game you could possibly think of you know we played stickball and football and on my block in my building alone there were twenty kids my age you know on my block we had a whole team. So we would compete like from 40th Street would compete against 41st Street. You know, we play in the street all day long and it was a great neighborhood. But then, you know, as things started to change, you know, I'd be playing Skelsies, you know, a little game we play in Brooklyn, you know, shooting these little bottle caps and, You know, two guys would get into a fight and one guy would go get a machete and hit the other guy in the face and his face would be hanging off. And, you know, that, you know, that was blood all over my Skelsey court. That
2: did not happen in my
1: neighborhood. No, no. So, yeah, I mean, it was, (laughs) you know, it formed me and made me who I am. You know, there was a lot of stuff that happened along the way. I mean, if there was a checklist of everything that could possibly go wrong to a child, I'd check all the boxes. And I used to think that that was a bad thing. But I realized I had to go through all of that to become the man I am today, the father I am today, the husband I am today, the teacher I am today. I had to go through that. You know, my mess is my message. This is what, you know, I, I do is, is, you know, when I have students, I know what it's like. I've been there. I know their struggles. And, you know, since I've been down that path and I know where the, the potholes are and You know, I know you don't want to go down that alley. That's a bad one. Um, So I I, I get to be the guide. And that's how it's really formed my teaching and how it's formed me as in, you know, I'm a writer. I'm, I'm, I'm writing a film right now about my life as a producer. You know, I learned, listen, if you could survive on those streets where I grew up, Hollywood's no big deal.
2: So your childhood was not only a catalyst for you to get out, find something better, but it has also given you so much to write about, to create about, to express. Because for people like myself who didn't grow up in something, you know, that kind of neighborhood, when you tell me these stories, I'm just like, wow. And I'm sure I'm not the only one that like enjoys hearing about this, you know, something different than what I experienced.
1: Yeah, you can't make it up. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm I'm in the process of writing a film right now about my life story and you know, when I'm I'm sitting with my writing partner and I'm, it's, it's just, you know, it's something out of a movie. You can't make it up. I mean, yeah. when I was 11, they were filming a movie in my neighborhood. All of a sudden I was a kid coming home from the, the park and I, I walked down my block and there was these cameras and trucks and this, this magical stuff was happening on my block. And I ran down the street and I said, what's going on here? And they said, we're making a movie. I go, well, how do you get in a movie? I want to be in a movie. And ran up to Morgana King who played Marlon Brando's wife in The Godfather. And she showed me a picture and a resume. I ran home, took a Polaroid picture myself, wrote some shit down on a piece of loose leaf paper, all my, you know, my bacon routine and my monkey and my Ricky Ricardo. And, and I handed it to her and she got a kick out of it and she gave it to the casting director. And the casting director said, go home, kid. We're going to stick you, uh, go get your parents. We're going to stick you in the movie. And I ran home, ma, 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 they're going to stick me in a movie. And she's like, you don't know what, you stay in the house. You don't know what kind of movie they're making over there. You know. So I ran down the street. I said, listen, my mother doesn't believe you. You got to tell her. I dragged the director to the house. He said, we're Universal Pictures. We're going to pay your son. You're going to pay him? Take, Take him. him. <laughs> <laughs> that's when I got paid. And I, and I I showed up to the set. And I was just a background actor. You know, they would needed kids for the neighborhood. But there was a young actor. Uh, his name was Glenn Scarpelli. He had a, a speaking role, a lead in the in the film. And he wasn't there the day that I showed up. I looked just like him. So everybody thought I was him. So they gave me the star treatment. They pouted my nose. Can I get you anything? I sat in his chair, you know,
0: mm-hmm. and you I really, uh, right at home.
1: I, I really, you know, I, I played along. They were calling me Glenn. I was like, okay, I'm, yeah, good. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm good with Glenn. Glenn. <laughs> yes. Yes. Glenn, come here, Glenn. Okay. I'm coming. That's truly when I got bit by the bug. I mean, they, they lived on my block for a month during the summer, and I watched them. And it was film school for a, a young boy. I'd follow them wherever they go. I'd even sneak into their—they built a, almost like a soundstage on my block. And I'd sneak in, and it was magical, you know, with the fake walls and the lights and all the, the stuff. It was, it was truly like—that's when I truly got bit by the bug. And then shortly after a year, maybe almost a year later, they were filming Saturday Night Fever in my neighborhood. And I watched John Travolta till four o'clock in the morning, you know, doing this fight scene coming out of a barracuda club and dress stunt. And it was it was truly magical. And when he went to his trailer, he was bombarded by screaming girls. Oh, they were just, you know, he was Vinnie Barbarino from Welcome Back, Cotter. And it was madness. He gave me his autograph and I knew I was like, I want to do this.
2: That's what you want. That's what I want.
1: I wanted some of that attention.
2: So fast forward to when you were 18 and you decided to leave New York. Tell us about that.
1: So what happened is, is, you know, I had this dream and I wanted to be an actor, but everybody I told my dream to laughed at me, told me it couldn't be done. I mean, I remember uh, there was a casting director that gave my mother's business card and he said, give me a call. I can help your son. And I remember asking my mother, mom, mom, call him, call him, call him. And she never called him. And I made, I created a story. Little Billy created a story that my mother doesn't believe in me. When I look back now, I know, and my mother was uh streetwise, New York. My mother's gorgeous, uh, especially back in the day. She was like, you know, men heads would turn. And my mother knew that this guy was not really interested in me. He was interested in her. And she wasn't interested in him, so she never called him. So, but the, the little boy didn't know that. The little boy created a story. Like, my mother doesn't believe in me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I carried that little story around with me. And, you know, when I got teenage, 15, 16, I, you know, without a dad around, I kind of banged heads with my mom and I ran away from home and I was running in the streets of Brooklyn and kind of doing some dumb stuff. Uh, and I, I found a father figure on the, on the streets in New York, somebody I looked up to. He was a wise guy, you know, with the diamond pinky ring and the double breasted suits. And, you know, he used to get me into clubs and taught me a whole new life. And I found my, my idol. Cut to one day after school, I'm walking up the street. He walks into a jewelry store and then he walks into a clothing store. Long story short, the guy behind the counter shot him five times in front of me. So I watched the guy that I wanted to be laying on the floor with his brains pumping out of his head. And I, I remember looking down at him and going, mm, maybe this is not the life for me. This is not, you I know, mean, I went to his wake and I, I looked at him, you know, there was an open casket, if you can believe that. And I said, I got to change my life. I don't want to end up like that because I had seen a lot of people winding up, the guys that I grew up with, dead or in jail. And I never thought I'd make it to 18 years old at that time. So I was at a racetrack. I won a couple hundred bucks. My friend said, what are you going to do with the money? I said, I'm going to Hollywood. Everybody laughed at me again. You know, my guidance counselor scooped me up one day for being a truant. And they sent me to the dean's office. No, it was the dean's office then to the guidance counselor. And she said, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I want to be an actor. And she laughed at me. <laughs> and she said, okay, well, you're serious about being an actor. You should go see, you know, the director, Mr. Carucci in the lunchroom, they're casting a play, you know, you should go down there. So I did. And they were doing uh, Grease. And I auditioned, and I got the lead role as Danny Zuko. And all of a sudden, part of it, you, you had to stay in school or whatever. My friends would, Come pull up in a stolen car and say, come on, jump in. And I go, no, I got to go to rehearsals. (laughs) They they call me names, you know, every other name in the book. And uh, the play was sold out and it was a big success. And then I went to my teacher and I said, I want to be an actor. What what, What advice do you have for me? And he told me to forget about it, kid. So here was another person that didn't believe in me. So, you know, it was constantly... People did not believe in my dream, but I didn't let that stop me. I I believed in my dream, and then that eighteen at two hundred bucks came out to Hollywood, and I've been living the dream ever since.
2: So when we met in nineteen ninety seven, you had been in Hollywood for a few years
1: by then, right? Like maybe I came out December fifteenth of nineteen eighty four. I had just turned. November, I had turned eighteen. I was waiting until I turned eighteen, and then I came out like ten days before Christmas, and it was the worst Christmas ever. It, it, literally, the, you know that song, "It Never Rains in Southern California." Bullshit! It rained for like three <laughs> weeks straight. I, I, I was, California, I was, I yeah. was, I was miserable. I was lonely. I didn't you know. I, I went to. I had this grand idea that Universal Studios, you know, the ones that filmed the movie in my neighborhood, that they were like, I'd show up to Universal and they'd open up the gates and say, come on been in. Waiting for you. Yeah. It was just this building. It was pouring rain, lock gates, nothing there. You know, I got a duffel bag, you know, limping around because I had a broken leg that I took my cast off before I came out. And I found a little dumpy motel, Universal Motel. Yeah, the key's right. Okay. Still have the key to the, I, the place, yeah. yeah. So when we met
2: in 1997, you had already done a lot of stuff. When I met you, we met at the Century Club, world mm-hmm. famous. Dr. Dre put it in his one of his songs. The next episode, and <sighs> and I didn't know who you were. Like I didn't know he was famous, but my friend at the time was like, you know who that is, right? And I was like, no, who is that? And she like started listing all these shows you had been in and all the stuff you had done. And I had no idea. Needless to say, you had a lot of credits. You had been on pretty woman. And you had been on married with children. Who's the boss. I had My of own stuff. show. You had your own show. Mm-mm. So she recognized you. I, I didn't watch much TV during those years. So <laughs> I didn't know what was going on, but we met in 1997. I went to the bar to get something to drink. And you were standing there wearing a black leather jacket and your hair was slicked back. Do you remember what I said?
1: Who are you? Donnie Brasco? (laughs) I said,
2: I said, who are you? No, I said, who are you? Donnie Brasco? And you said, no, but I know him. (laughs) And then you got me a beer. Anyway, that's a whole nother story. You know, know, he was a guest
1: on my podcast.
2: Donnie Brasco. Yeah. Yeah, He was (laughs) so cool. Very cool guy. But anyways, Fast forward then. So we start dating 1997. Fast forward two years later, 1999. You get a call from one of your friends in New York who has a proposal for you to write and produce a movie in New York, Kings of Brooklyn. And you decided to go. And that was a very pivotal moment in our relationship, very pivotal moment in your career. And in your life. So tell us about what happened in 1999 with that movie when you decided to go produce it in New York.
1: Well, in 1999, I went to New York City, wrote a script. I rewrote a script. It was a script that was given to me and it needed some work. So I hired a writer and a director. And I had a theater here in Hollywood on uh, Melrose and Heliotrope that I had built with a bunch of other actor friends of mine and i put it up as a play and did table readings and did rewrites and then i flew out the guy who was the the money guy and i got him on board and, and to have me produce it and i had never produced a film before but you know i've been in the game for you know a dozen years and he trusted me with Producing this film, and I went to New York City, and I had blinders on. I had never produced a film. I literally got a book on how to produce a movie, (laughs) and I yeah, and I read (laughs) it on the plane. You know, I mean that was my guide. You should see that I still have the book on the shelf. It's falling apart because I I used it all the time. I will put that book in the the show links because it's a great book and it really taught me a lot about producing and. You know, I went to New York and it's the hardest place to make a movie. You know, I produced a movie in New York City in 1999. I raised two and a half million dollars to make the film. And I had blinders on to make this film. Long story short, that movie that should have been a month, two months, money fell out and we had to do reshoots. We needed another half a million dollars to finish the film. It took a long time to get that finishing money. And I was in New York for two years making this film trying to raise the money, trying to get it completed. And during that time, we broke up because I was in New York. You were in L.A. and having a long distance relationship. I I didn't feel I was so like literally blind. All all I had, I felt like the weight of the world was on my shoulders making this. film. I felt like I was responsible for Mm -hmm. two and a half million dollars. So I was just kind of locked in, laser focused on, on making this movie. I thought the movie was the most important thing ever.
2: Sorry to interrupt, but it's so interesting to me because you've interviewed a lot of people on your podcast, actors, writers, producers, and I've heard more than one of them, several, say, if I had known how hard this would be, whatever it is, I would have never done it. Yeah. But they didn't know, right? So sometimes Mm -hmm. I feel like ignorance is bliss, like, I'm just going to try this, whatever. And then you're doing it, you're learning as you go figuring things out. And then looking back, you're like, wow, that shit was hard. If I had known how hard it was in advance, I probably wouldn't have done it. So that's what happened to you. You literally had no clue what you were doing, but you learned along the way. I remember visiting you in New York and you were fully immersed in the project. Like you were calling casting directors and you were setting everything up and you look like a pro. You, to me, it was like, this guy knows what he's doing. I better move out of the way because there's no stopping him. And that's that's <laughs> the beauty of sometimes not even knowing <laughs> Yeah, what's well, coming. It
1: was probably one of the toughest things I've ever done in my life, producing. I, it was a very, you know, like I, I, I got beat up during the making of it. I mean, not only was I was a producer, I was a writer, I was a lead actor in the film. So there was a, way too many hats to wear. And, you know, I didn't delegate and I took the weight of the whole film on my shoulders. And, you know, usually on a film, there's five or six different producers. Mm-hmm. I was the only producer and that was my ego. They got in the way and I just was I didn't delegate. So I had my hands in everything, which hindsight now I look back and I go, wow, I, I learned how to make a film. I'm like every department, everything mm-hmm. I was. I had my hands into everything. So, you know, now I'm looking forward to the next film I'm producing because I know I can, you know, produce a film now with my eyes closed because that was my film school. you know everybody's
2: job. So when you delegate, you know what you're expecting from each person.
1: Yeah. So, but, you know, the the moral to that whole story about New York City was, you know, I thought it's interesting. I, I met a really big producer in New York City and he could tell how stressed out I was making the film. And he said, Billy, it's just a movie. It's just a movie. He kept telling me that, but I didn't get it. You know, I was just, I had put all my marbles in making this film. Long story short, I had the movie. I had all the stuff, the material stuff. I always dreamt that I wanted a loft in Soho. I had that. I had the title, producer, star, blah, blah, blah. I had all this stuff that you think is going to make you happy. But I was miserable. I was like, is this it you know truly miserable and it was,
2: it was ego based
1: yeah it was it was ego based and there was there was something missing in my life and that was you you know right now i don't have all that stuff but i'm the richest man alive because i have you and you know when i came back two years later you still loved me and you took me back and i was able to accept your love because you know the biggest problem with me was I carried around a lot of stories from my childhood that I wasn't worthy of love. Uh, you know, let me give you an example. My mother used to drag me to the mailbox as a kid, open it and go, look, your father doesn't send child support. So what does a little boy do? He creates a story. I don't deserve money. I don't deserve love. I'm not worthy. Blah, 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 blah. It's a bunch of noise. I created a story. But the little boy becomes a man and he starts, he takes that story and he carries it around like a truth. So when I had my own TV series, well, guess what I was doing? I was flying a lot. Caesar's Palace. Give me the suite with the baby grand piano, pissing it away on a roulette table because the money was burning a hole in my pocket because I felt like I didn't deserve it. When I had women in my life that lo- were attracted, I'd sabotage it. I'd sabotage because I felt like I didn't deserve it. And I sabotaged our love in the beginning because I felt like I wasn't worthy of it. I was afraid to get hurt. But when I came back two years, you know, they say, if you let something go and it comes back to you, you know, it's, it's real. And when I came back and you were willing to take me back and you told me that I do deserve love and that you love me and you wouldn't hurt me.
2: I told you I would wait for you.
1: Yeah. But, but it literally you saved my life in, in so many ways. I mean,
2: well, those two years were probably the best thing that could have happened for us, for our relationship, because it just sealed the deal for me. I knew you were the one the whole time you were gone. And for you, and I I had to let you go. I had to like cut it. Like, I remember at one point I was like, lose my F number. <laughs> so mad. <laughs> like, I tell him, I'll wait for you. And then I'm uh, like, lose my F number. But I knew that you were the one. And so I'm glad you came back to me. But. It goes back to the whole thing of, you know, if you're going to blame people for the bad, you got to blame them for the good. So your childhood was rough, but everything that you went through has brought you to the point where you are today. Absolutely. And you can appreciate
1: Sure. You know, and, 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 you know, what I, the biggest thing is, is the story. Change your story, change your life. You know, I carried around a lot of stories as a little boy. I created a lot of stories. Events happen and a story was created. The little boy created, the damaged little boy created a story. And I carried those stories around with me my whole life. I mean, I battled depression. I, 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 you know, I, I tried to numb away the pain and none of that, I could never let go of the pain was really it took when, kind of when the shit hit the fan for me you know with people dying around me you know when my 11 year old niece ellie passed away from brain cancer and my stepfather died of prostate cancer and we had a miscarriage and our dog got ran out and got hit by a car and 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 then when you got diagnosed with breast cancer you know really shook me rocked me to the core and I, I I had I was in a bad place.
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, that's why we got to live life to the fullest.
1: But but it got me it got me it. it got me on my knees, and 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 I truly I found my faith, and I got to let go of the pain and free myself and know that I do deserve love. I do just like everybody who's listening right now. That you're not the little voice in your head. You're not that little fearful voice you do deserve everything that is yours by divine right love peace joy wealth health abundance you name it you deserve it so you know you got to let go of the story and and i truly let go and let god and i freed myself up and i've never been depressed since and it's awesome. and my life i got my life i mean i'm the i'm the president of the lucky club i haven't my beautiful wife. I have my beautiful son. I have a very successful studio here for the past seven years. You know, you got to retire. You started Manhattan Model Studios. You're living your passion, your dream. So I'm loving it. it's been amazing. So I'm I'm, I'm just truly really grateful. Everything had to happen.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, everything, everything happens for a reason. Yeah. Even though we might not like it, everything happens the yeah. way it happens. And we have to mm-hmm. figure out how we're going to react and move forward.
1: And sometimes, you know, when you're in the, the shit, there's a miracle there. You got to look for the miracles. You know, the shit of cancer, um, I, I like to call it the fertilizer. I planted seeds of the Manhattan Active Studio and a, a beautiful thing came out. Mm. During COVID, I planted the seeds of the podcast and a beautiful thing came out. My love for you, you know, everything that we went through, you know, I want to, I want to make sure that everybody knows that you're hundred percent cancer free and you're healthy. Mm-hmm. But during that time, you know, you really realize that life is short. Don't take shit for granted. Tell the people in your life that you love them. Appreciate the present. You can't be in the past. I drove my vehicle of life looking in the rear view mirror. And you crash when you're looking in the rear view mirror. And look forward, yeah, well, gotta, you, you know, but life. truly, I mean, the, the future doesn't exist either. So you got to be right here now in the present and now and right now in this moment right here. And that's where the magic happens in the now and being grateful for everything that you have, you know, truly being in gratitude every day.
2: So I know we just talked about not looking in the past, but I do have a question for you. What has been your Favorite on-set experience on any movie set or television set or play or anything like that. What's been your favorite experience?
1: Does it have to be on set? Because I, I, um, I mean, for me, I've had a lot of them. I've been very blessed in my career. I've I've worked with some very, very, you know, Academy Award winners and. Just some really talented people in the industry, you know. I mean, I love doing Who's the Boss because it was doing a play and it was in front of a live audience, and we did two shows and we rehearsed like a play. And then, two shows a day. Yeah, no. Well, well, we rehearsed. You know, we blocked one day and we rehearsed, and then we went on set and we blocked for cameras, and then we did, you know, like a. But then we had a show. Was it Thursdays or Fridays? We did it two shows in front of a live audience. Oh, got it. So, you know, that was just, and it was such a, you're working with some amazing Tony Danza, who, you know, had more, he was, had Taxi for whatever years and who's the boss. I mean, we had been on television doing comedies for, you know, 20 years. <laughs> you know, it's was like, ridiculous. You know, Catherine Hellman, a genius, a comic genius, Judith Light, you know, uh, we just, I learned so much from them and we had so much fun and it was a big family and we would it was just like when, when it was showtime and, you know, we were backstage and we just come on and just felt the roar of the audience when they would laugh at our jokes that we worked on all week long. And mm. and it was just, that's that was magical. It was truly like doing a play. And, and I love that element of it. Yeah. So I would say that's one of my my fond experiences. Another one is one that I didn't, I wasn't on set, but it was an audition. I had done Pretty Woman with Gary Marshall and his sister Penny Marshall, that I grew up watching Laverne from Laverne and Shirley. She was directing a movie with Robert De Niro called Awakenings, and I was in Palm Springs and I had audition and I got a call saying hey, they want to screen test you with Robert De Niro and Penny Marshall. So I literally jumped in my car. Drove back 100 miles an hour because I wanted to get ready for this thing. And I showed up to, I believe it was Warner Brothers on a, on a Sunday. The studio was closed and it was me. I walked into a room and as me, Robert De Niro, my idol wow. in acting, Penny Marshall, I grew up watching her on Laverne and Shirley, Shm- Sh- Sh- what is it? Shmiel, Slamazel, Hots I and never, Peppers. And I, co- I still don't know
2: what that But means you know, I,
1: I grew up watching her, you know. And, you know, De Niro was my idol, you know, as a young actor growing up, I, I idolized any anything he did. So, you know, I was looking for a raging bull, Jake LaMotta or, you know, Travis Pickle from Taxi Driver. But I got Leonard some like kind of, you know, he was kind of sick and he, he was just very quiet and very shy. And we're doing a screen test. And um,
2: was he in full character the whole time? Yeah,
1: he was in character. He didn't
2: break character. and didn't break
1: character. And, and it, you know, it was kind of a little shock to me because, you know, he was kind of like this old, sick guy compared to, you know, what I what I thought I was going to see in that room. But we had a scene and I was a cab driver who dropped him off. And it's a really bad neighborhood. And I'm trying to tell him, you know, this is a bad neighborhood. Len, let me get you out of here, whatever. And we're doing this scene and, you know, there's a cameraman and Penny Marshall and De Niro is... Like on this bench and I said, come on, let me get you out. And when I go to lift him up, he lays there dead weight and mm-hmm. seriously makes me struggle to get him up. Wow. And when I, I'm struggling in that moment, he had done nothing, but he gave me so much in that moment, everything became real. Right. And she never yelled cut. So I took Robert De Niro and I I, I put him over my shoulder. <laughs> I, I, I I was, I had, I'm carrying Robert De Niro. I go, come on, but I'm going to get you out. I played the Puerto Rican cab joke. I'm going to get you home. And we just started improvising. And then finally she yells cut and I put Robert De Niro down very gingerly. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, and and he goes, that was good. That was good. <laughs> And that for me was, you know, I literally like I like I floated out of the room. I was like, you know, I got to work with De
2: So two things. One is you don't stop until the director yells cut.
1: Correct. Between action and cut, you stay in character the whole time.
2: Yeah. You don't know what's going on. They might be loving it. That might be the scene that's going to end up in the movie or whatever you're doing. So you don't stop till the director yells cut. The other thing is I was going to ask you what you define a generous actor to be. Sounds to me like that's a good example of a generous actor.
1: Yeah. So, you know, acting is like a tennis match. You know, I serve the ball onto your side of the court. You hit it back with a little spin. I got to react to that. I got to go to the corner. I got to hit it. It's about really listening and reacting and having when you when, when you working with an actor of that caliber, they're going to feed you. They're going to give you stuff. You know, if you're just in the moment that's a giving actor, somebody who's not, you know, just like, what's my next line, but is really there giving you stuff, hitting, you know, hitting, putting a little spin on the ball. So you got to go react to that. Acting is listening and reacting, not just memorizing a bunch of words. So I think truly a giving actor is, is one that's open, especially when you're on a set, like to communicate and really, you know, if you have an idea and you say, like, hey, well, why don't we try it like this, that they're open to it. I mean, I've worked with a lot of actors that could have been like jerks because they're, at that level but they were open to you know you know it's a collaboration you want the other actor that you're working with to be great because this is only gonna make you how about when
2: you were on uh NYPB blue and you did that scene with Jimmy Smith and what's the other guy's name Dennis Dennis France Dennis France and you wanted to do something different and you went for it
1: Mm -hmm. and they
2: didn't even know what you were gonna do, right? And they just like I mean that scene was amazing. And they just went with it,
1: yeah, and, so and they, they were breaking all the rules because the writer David Milch, you know, it's a long story, but you know, I had audition to play this role Who's I, my character is the son of a mafia boss who's a psychopath who shoots his own brother in the head because he found out that he's gay, and, he, and I killed two other people in a bridal shop, some guy trying to blackmail me, so I you know I shove. A, 13 bucks up his ass and i put him in a trash can i mean i'm, I'm like a, that's terrible uh, but that's my character he was just he was a psychopath but the scene that i had auditioned for is the interrogation scene when they finally catch me they're looking for me the whole show and this is when they catch me and this is my interrogation well the the when i got to set and i was in makeup and, and you know and i got they send me a new script and it had all that beautiful that scene that i auditioned was gone they Mm -hmm. it was like they they destroyed it and i was like i saw jimmy and dennis in the makeup trailer and i said hey guys you know they didn't even know me and i said what happened to the scene they don't even know what i was talking about but they hadn't read that that's you know those sides so i showed them and they they kind of agree that it was a better you know this was a better scene whatever but long story short i went to the director she said no she says you stick to the words on the page David Milch. He's a stickler. you got to, you know, those are his words. So I said, okay, well, whatever, you know, we're down on the set, we're doing it and it wasn't going anywhere. And I was like, you know, I, I said, Jimmy Dennis, can we, can I go back to the old stuff? And they were like, uh-uh. and David Milch showed up to the set and he was literally like watching. Mm-hmm. And I went to the director and I said, Elodie, can I please go back to that You know, other scene? She says, no. She says, David's standing right there. So after we did it, a couple more takes, I looked at Jimmy and Dennis, and I was in a cage in a holding cell. And I said, Guys, I got to play here. And, and Jimmy smiled at me, and Dennis, and I, I brought back all of the stuff that they cut out. And I, I even called Dennis France a fat fuck and i mean i i mean but it became explosive because i started i said that's that that gun that don't scare me you know like i'm a psychopath like and he started banging on the cage i started banging i I started cursing or whatever as he's walking out from the set you know in the scene he goes you can't say fuck on abc (laughs) cut
2: do it again
1: Elodie walks over, she, David Milch, the, you know, the writer looks, you know, the producer of the show looks, and she walks over and She goes, well, you got your way, kid. She goes, yeah, I want you to do it exactly the same way. but cut out all the F words and let's do it. Right. And I, f- I forgot to tell you before this, David Milch showed up to the set and he said, what's the problem here? Huh. And I said, well, you know, and I explained, he said, this is not about you, kid. He says, this is about our principled actors right here. He says, listen, this is not, this is not Stephen J. Cannell. This is Stephen Botchko. And, blah, 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 blah. and I said, listen, you're the boss. I knew I was, I was getting fired. So right. I said, you're the boss. I'll, I'll say the lines however you want. After that, he came up to me after we shot it, and he caught me in the hallway, and he said, you got some engine on you, kid. He said, you got some engine on you, kid. He says, I'm going to be leaving here, and I'm going to be creating a new show, and I'd like to write a character for you. And I told them, I'm sorry, but I'm leaving in New York to oh. produce a film. <laughs> That's when I was going yeah. to make Kings of Brooklyn. <laughs> but, 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 you know, um, I, I, I stood my ground and I said it wasn't about me. It was about the show. It was about the character. Yeah. And, you know, if anybody watches the show, a it's, it's a powerful scene. Yeah, a the scene. episode's called A Tush Full of Dollars. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so let me ask you this. Is it easy to break into Hollywood?
1: Is it easy to break into Hollywood? I would say it depends on how bad you want it. You know, when I came out to Hollywood, I was relentless in the pursuit of my, my thing. You know, if I showed up to the gate at Warner Brothers and the guy, the security guard said, sorry, kid, you can't come in. I'd walk around the block. I'd climb the fence. I jumped the lot and I was on there hanging out with Kevin Bacon doing it while he was filming. Nobody knew I just jumped on the lot. You can't do that now. Yes. But, but I was truly relentless. I wanted it really bad. I found out these things about, they were called breakdowns. They came out every morning and they delivered them to the front of an agent's office and they had all the roles that they were casting. Well, what did I do? I went and as soon as the guy dropped off the manila envelope, I'd pick it up and I'd go to Denny's and I'd go through the breakdowns and I'd take my headshots and I'd put them in a folder and, and I, I, I created my, I was my own manager. And I mean, I wanted it bad and you got to be hungry this is not a business you go in and give 50 percent if you truly want this and you go after it like you mean it it's a rough road it's a it's a roller coaster ride but it's doable i mean i i've made more actors that have knocked on my door with a dream and they had no idea how to get started and after i trained them they're working actors i mean i just had i ran into one of my actors rob zappo and he just booked this fifth commercial you know I mean, he's like on fire, you know? So,
2: but how does that translate to today's times? Because breakdowns are not in paper anymore. They're not delivered to somebody's door. So what can somebody, if somebody's listening right now and they're like, okay, but what do I do right now? What's the first, second, maybe first three steps that, that someone could take to get their career going? What would you say are the top three things they can do right now?
1: Study, study, one, study okay, the craft. Classes. Yeah, you got to know what you're doing. Okay, if you don't know what you're doing, that casting director, that door opens up one time. If you walk into that door and you don't know what you're doing, that door is going to close. If you fail in that audition, that door's going to close. Now, if you come into that room, guns blazing 150% and you knock their socks off, you just made a fan. That casting director is going to be a fan of your work. She's going to bring you back. She's going to put you on that list. Because you know what? You made her look good. And that's what if what,
2: you're in Nebraska?
1: If you're in Nebraska, well, you find what's going on in Nebraska. You know, find, find local theater. You know, find film schools. You know, there's, there's schools that have a film department. Just go, hey, I'm an actor. I would love to be involved. Do some plays. You know, start studying your craft. You got to know if you want to be a professional actor in Hollywood. You can't. This is you don't click your heels three times and boom, you're in uh, movies. You got to know what you're doing. So you
2: could also take classes over Zoom
1: right now. Yes, listen, I I have students all over the world in different countries. You can study with me. It doesn't matter since the pandemic. You don't have to be here in my school. This is not a virtual background. This is a real. This is a real school. You don't, but you know, everything's online and this is the future of casting. So So you have to master the art of self tapes. You have to master the art of zoom callbacks. That's the way you're going to work. So,
2: so step one,
1: study training,
2: take some classes, study what's step two,
1: step two would be. Making sure you have the right materials that show your castability. Like, you know, you got to know, what are you selling? You're a product. You're selling something to Hollywood. They got to know what they're buying. I knew exactly what I was selling when I came to Hollywood. I was selling the New York Street Kid, you know? That was what I was selling. I had work. I was working out before I came out here. I was selling the Teen Idol, and that's what I sold to them, and that's what they bought. I knew exactly what I was selling. You have to know what you're selling. What is your castability? Make a list. What is my, you know, the five roles that I see myself playing? You can ask your
2: friends too how they see you, right? You
1: got to know what your castability is, what you're selling. And then, you know, really create a demo reel, you know, find, you know, the cool thing is now with technology, these phones, you know, the, the cameras on are amazing. You know, find a monologue, you play in a lawyer or a doctor or whatever your castability is and 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 film yourself and have a piece of footage of you actually doing that. So that you can put on a casting network's actors access, you know, one of these casting websites. And, you know, if I'm a casting director, first, you got to have a really good picture of yourself. And I'm not talking about a headshot that your friend shot in the backyard. You want something that's professional. You want to invest in a really good headshot that shows your castability. And then you want to have some kind of a reel where they click on it and they go, oh, my gosh, there it is. This person can act. Because if you don't have that, they go, oh, well, no credits, no nothing. How do we know this person can act? So it's really so about you've showing got them.
2: your training. You've got your tools of the trade, which are headshots and reels. Mm-hmm. That's step two. Step three, I'm assuming, would be start submitting yourself on projects. Okay? Yeah. So you- how would you do that? If you're in Nebraska or Indiana or wherever you are in the world, how would you start to submit yourself if you don't have an agent yet?
1: Well, you get yourself an Actors Access account, Casting Networks, LA Casting, mm-hmm. there's Casting Frontier, there's Backstage, there's there's, there's, are, there's many acting, but those are the top ones. You create account with your profile, with your headshot, your demo reel, your materials, And you start becoming your own manager. You look at the breakdowns on a daily basis. You know, you got to put your parameters, your age range, your special skills or whatever it is. You got to know, you know, what's my type? And if you see something that looks your type, you know, submit yourself.
2: I have a student that just submitted herself on 10 projects on LA Casting. She Mm -hmm. got three requests. That's just, awesome. This last week. Yeah. So and, it's doable.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I, I could tell you hundreds of stories that I've, you know, I mean, one of my actresses, she had auditioned, she had submitted herself like a hundred things and nothing came, not one audition. She was literally ready to quit. And I said, no, you just keep putting it out there. Mm-hmm. And then boom, she booked like five jobs after that. Wow. You know, and it was she was really she was, she, really, was, at she, was at, the, she was at the one yard line ready to ready score to a touchdown play. but she was ready to give up because she you know, you you got to have thick skin.
2: When I was at the height of my modeling and I was going out on auditions all the time, I could go out on 10, 20 auditions and sometimes not get anything and then all of a sudden I'd go on five auditions and book all five of them. It's like you never know. There's no rhyme or reason in the business. And you've experienced the same thing. Like it could be totally quiet. And then all of a sudden you're booked on three things. And guess what? They all shoot on the same day.
1: Yeah. How many it's, times I've had to book three so jobs and I had times. to turn two of them down? <laughs> no,
2: but they were able to work with sometimes, you. Sometimes,
1: but sometimes they shoot at the same time and you yeah. have to pick, you know, choose. It's
2: it's a funny, funny business. Yep. So if you could go back in time and tell... The let's see, the 18 year old Billy. If you could give the 18 year old Billy some advice, what would you tell him? Don't let that girl go, don't let that one Diana girl go.
1: <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you're he, too young. He, he, he'd, be he'd be like, like what? What? what are you talking He's about? I'm 18. Yeah, no, there was, there was yeah, 18, there was a lot of girls there. <laughs> you go, which one are you talking about?
2: Which, which, Diana? <laughs> which,
1: which one? 18, wow, 18.
2: I was going to ask you 15, but let's go with 18.
1: Okay, well, 18, I would say love yourself. Love yourself. Mm, that's big. Yeah, love yourself. That's everything. Be proud of who you are don't care what other people think of you. You know, at that time I was, I was really concerned about, you know, I, I was uncomfortable in my own skin. I was, I was letting those stories run. Like I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not valuable, blah, 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 bunch of noise. So just know like who you are, you know, and, and this is my belief. I believe that everybody, the listener out there, that you were created a masterpiece and there is nothing wrong with you. Absolutely nothing. Except for the little noise that between your ears that, and if you listen to that, you know, if I, I like to say when you're in your head, you're dead. When you're in your heart, you're smart and just go to your heart and go to who you really are. And that's that beautiful light within you. That's your magic. That's your power and come from your light and love and, It's a game changer. I wish I knew that. You know, I I was too hard on myself. I beat myself up a lot. You know, I became my abuser and I was really tough on myself. And that's because I didn't love myself. So I would say truly love yourself, own who you are, be proud of who you are, and have fun. Life is short. Be kind. Love.
2: Can I add one thing to tell the 18-year-old Billy? What? Save some of that money. Don't blow it in Vegas. (laughs) 401k
1: it. Yeah. Put it in the stock market. Yeah. I mean, I wish somebody, you know, that's, that's, you know, yeah, that, that I would say definitely learn to manage money, you know, learn how to take that money and invest it because I'll tell you, you know, back then, if I would have invested, there was a couple opportunities, you know, back then, if I would have invested in. There was a building in Brooklyn. That building right now could be worth, you know, I could have bought it for nothing back then. I could have bought it, but it'd be worth millions now. So, yeah, I would say definitely start early. Start investing investing early. Start saving your money early.
2: Anything you want to add before we end our podcast? Any final thoughts? Anything that you feel your listeners need to hear here
1: now? Well, I just said it. You know, it's really love yourself, be kind to yourself, don't live in the past, let go, you know, free yourself, you know, maybe you've been hurt in the past and you're holding on to stuff and holding on to that anger, resentment, whatever. It's just toxic. You know, you just got to let go of it and you got to move forward. And you truly, if you have a, a dream in your heart, make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. Make sure you're not doing it because you're trying to prove something to somebody or you're trying to, you know, you want to be in this business. If you want to become rich and famous, you're probably getting into it for the wrong reason. If you're trying to prove people wrong, it's probably the wrong reason. It's got to be something that you're truly passionate about and you love it and it's in you and this is your gift. And, you know, it's gonna be a bumpy road. It's gonna be a roller coaster. But, you know, if it's in you and you love it and it's your passion, it's a beautiful journey. This this acting career is just, you know, it's a noble you know, occupation. And it's, it's, it's fun, you know? So do it because it's your passion. And if you're going to do it, do it like you fucking mean it. Go oh, after it with a vengeance. Don't take no for an answer. Get some no's. You want to get no's. You want to get a lot of no's. As Many no's as possible because no's mean you're in the game and every no brings you closer to a yes. And then it's just a matter of time. And don't take the rejection, you know, the stuff and don't take it personal. That's just, it's a business. You know, you just got to let it like kind of roll off and go next, you know, next, just keep moving forward. And, and, you know, if you get knocked down and you will get knocked down, dust yourself off, get back up and keep swinging and keep going after that dream. And it will happen.
2: And that's what I tell my students. Don't take it personal. Because you could have been the top two, like the last two standing, but you happen to be brunette. The other one is blonde. And somebody comes in the room and says, we're going to go with the blonde one today. Mm. And you didn't even know how close you were to getting that gig or whatever it is. So you can't take anything personal in this business. What's meant to be yours is going to be yours. And no one can take that away.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I teach the craft of acting, right? I teach the business. It's show business. You got to know show. You got to know business but you know i can't teach you can't buy it it can't be taught it can't be bought it's that x factor it's that mm-hmm. that the the grustle, the grind and the hustle that you got to have so go get your gristle on go after your dream with the vengeance and we'll see you in hollywood i love you i love you
0: hey thanks for listening to the show please rate review share this with your friends subscribe if you haven't